It is good to be with you all this morning. Um, as Mark mentioned earlier, my name is Julian. I'm the pastor of Grace Fellowship Church down in the city of Toronto. And we are a partner church, sister church in the Great Commission Collective. And we are so thankful for Gospel Partnership. Thankful for you, for this church. Uh, thankful for the staff team and the ways that... Uh, the pandemic, as much as it's been a hindrance to many things, has enabled our staff to work a little bit more closely with your staff, um, in particular for your staff to help teach our staff and train and equip, and that has been a huge blessing. It's been such an encouragement for me uh, to, to sort of track from a distance with the interim elders here as, as they were shepherding you guys through a bit of a rough stretch and into a new stretch with some new elders appointed. We have been praying for you guys, rejoicing with you guys along the way, and, and just so encouraged by what's happening here in Markham. And so it's a joy to be here this morning and to um, do just about my favorite thing in, in the whole world, which is open God's word together. So uh, all that being said, I'll invite you to open to Matthew chapter 2. Um, I've been preaching through Matthew's gospel at our church, but where we are, we're all the way near the end of the gospel. So with Christmas coming up, it's a joy to be able to go all the way back to the beginning of the gospel, Matthew chapter 2, and think specifically about the birth of Christ. Um, As you turn to Matthew 2, I'll invite you to please just pray with me once more. Father God, we have already heard amazing things this morning. We've sung amazing things about you. We've heard amazing things in a testimony about how you're still at work saving sinners. Father, we pray that as we turn to your word, you would settle our hearts. Free our minds from distractions. Grant us the precious, the miraculous gift of self-forgetfulness. That we would lean into your word. Our eyes, our ears, our hearts would be filled with you. So that we would be changed, strengthened, encouraged. That we would receive hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a a phrase that's been thrown around a lot over the last several years. um, That can be kind of intimidating to us as Christians. People will admonish you or say something like, You want to get on the right side of history. That's kind of intimidating. Uh, We know what they mean by that, right? We say you need to get on the right side of history. There's this implication, there's this implied message that progress is happening. We're moving forward as a society. The world is moving forward. Things are changing. The new powers that are rising up are bringing in a a new, it's it's a revolution of values, of the way we look at the world. It's, It's an openness to all things secular, a rejection of all things God, all things old fashioned, a turning away from from these so-called biblical values of the exclusivity of Christ and human sexuality and old school understanding of gender and any number of different issues that you want to identify. You just know it's all lumped in. And, And the messaging is, 
Things are changing. Progress is inevitable. You, you are so backwards, so old-fashioned. The time to change is now because everything is going to change whether you like it or not. And from the perspective of future history, when they look back on you and your life and what you believed, you're going to look like an idiot. You're on the wrong side. You're on the losing side. This is a, a particular pinch point for us as Christians, right? Because we've got a king who teaches us authoritatively that, in fact, there is only one way to salvation. It's in the name of Christ. And that the the truth of what he teaches in his word, of what he commands us, of what our king expects of us, never changes. In the beginning, he created them male and female in his own image and likeness to glorify him. Marriage from the beginning, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. From the beginning, it's it's been a covenantal union of one man and one woman for life. That's been God's plan, God's design. Jesus himself, the expression, the embodiment of all mercy, taught that there was salvation in no one else other than him. He alone makes the way to the Father. And on and on you go and you understand that the commands of Christ, the framework that Christ lays out as king, is fundamentally incompatible with the progressive movement of our culture. So which side is the right side of history? Where do you actually want to be? Well, for us as Christians, we know That in Jesus, God's reign, his kingdom, has come to earth. Is coming to earth and will finally and fully come. It is unstoppable. And it is actually, ironically, those who oppose him who will find themselves on the wrong side of history. Matthew wants to build this faith, this confidence into us in Matthew chapter 2. And that's what we want to have built into us this morning. is firm belief that the reign of heaven is coming to earth. This is the right side of history. First of all, Matthew's going to show us this by saying the reign of heaven comes to earth despite all opposition. Despite all opposition, no matter who stands against. See, Matthew's not going to... Hold out some vision for us that the reign of heaven is coming to earth and everyone just gladly accepts it. This is not the same thing as saying the reign of heaven is coming to earth without opposition. It's saying despite all opposition. It will be contested, but it will come. Look at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. If you're an underliner, or a Bible marker, you might want to mark those words, the king. That's significant. Matthew is, is tipping his cards for us here a little bit. He's showing us where is the conflict going to begin. It's going to begin with this reality that Herod calls himself a king. But then look at what happens. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born? There's that word, king of the Jews. How many kings can there be? 
know many kings that want to share their throne with another king, right? This is, this is the problem. Herod sees himself as king, ruler, lord, wants to rule here. And now here are these magi, these wise men, these astrologers, these magicians from the east, whether it's, whether it's Persia or Babylonia or somewhere in the east, we're not exactly sure where. They've traveled. They've come with presumably great wealth and an entourage. And they've come into Judea, into the realm of Herod the king. They march into his courts and say, where is the one who is born king? They say, we saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. All of this is is setting up the most fundamental conflict in the world for Herod in an extreme sense. But really for all of us, it's the question of who will be king. It's a question that determines how you're going to live today, tomorrow, how you interact with your neighbors, how you engage in your work, and what will your eternal future reality be? Who will be king? It's the most important question about us. It's the one that Adam and Eve failed when they determined that they want to determine good and evil for themselves. It's the one that we fail when we try to set up our own rules and regulations, our own way of life, figuring it out for ourselves, rather than bowing the knee to King Jesus. And the most frustrating and infuriating thing in all the world is when you are trying so hard to get something. I want the praise of people. I want the honor of people. I want the obedience of people. But then you see someone else get it. The honor, the glory, the power, the position. And someone else gets it instead of you. Oh, that's frustrating. That's exactly what happens to Herod. Herod who sets himself up as king. Herod with all the pomp and the power and the glory wants everybody to follow him. And then these people travel from afar. Not to see him. They walk into his courts and they say, we want to see the king. And he, Hey, I'm right here. No, no, no. The one who is born, the one who's got a star, the one who even the heavens proclaim. We want to see him. Oh, that's infuriating. If that's what you're living for, and it was exactly what Herod was living for. Do you, do you have an idea of who Herod was? I mean, we hear the name Herod in the Christmas stories, and we read about it every year, but it's important to understand what kind of a guy this guy actually was. I'm going to give an extended quote here to try to give some background from New Testament scholar Don Carson. He, he writes this about Herod. This is helpful for us to fill in the picture. He says this, Herod was named king of Judea by the Roman Senate in 40 BC. Okay, 40 years before the new era, before the, before the birth of Christ, give or take. By 37 BC, he had crushed with the help of Roman forces, all opposition to his rule. So understand, the first three years of his reign, from 40 to 37, he's just crushing, he's wiping out all opposition. So anyone who would stand against him, anyone who could rise in his place, wiped out. And he's wise enough, he's smart enough to get the Romans on his side. So the Romans have appointed him, he's got their good graces, their additional forces, he wipes out all opposition. Carson continues, he was wealthy, politically gifted, Intensely loyal, an excellent administrator, and clever enough to remain in the good graces of successive Roman emperors. That is no small feat. His famine relief was superb. His building projects, including the temple, begun in 20 BC, was admired even by his foes. But he loved 
power, inflicted incredibly heavy taxes on the people, and resented the fact that many Jews considered him a usurper. He was, uh, he was Idumean, he was not Jewish, and so the people of Judea did not like him. They didn't want him ruling over them. In his last years, so he, he lived up to about 4 B.C. If we estimate that Jesus was born roughly in 6 B.C. So this, is, so this is in the last couple years of Herod's reign when Jesus is born, right as he's reaching the peak of crazy, okay? In, the last, in his last years, suffering an illness that compounded his paranoia as if it wasn't bad enough before, he turned to cruelty and in fits of rage and jealousy killed close associates, his wife, and at least two of his sons. This is, this is the kind of guy that you're dealing with. If you knew him, someone who is opposed, cruelly opposed, to anyone who would approach his throne. Which is the right side of history? What does it look like? The first three years, he already wiped everyone out. Ever since then, it doesn't matter who. It could be his wife, could be his sons, could be his advisors, his friends. He'll kill you. Verse 3 of Matthew 2, when Herod the king heard this, heard that this Jesus, or not Jesus, that this one was born king of the Jews, when he heard this, he was troubled. It's a bad sign. You don't want to trouble Herod. He was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, because they know what that means when Herod gets upset. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. And they quote from Micah chapter 5. Now this, this is important for us to realize, to get our heads around for a minute. Herod actually believed that the scriptures were telling the truth. It's possible for you to believe that the Bible contains truth, but for your heart still to be hostile to God. This can often happen, particularly in cases like Herod's, where you're surrounded by people who say that they believe, and yet you still feel like an outsider, like they don't accept you. Or like you're not getting what you want out of the religion. Maybe it's the story of someone who grows up in a Christian home and is familiar with the Bible and they know it and they don't distrust it. They just disdain the God of the Bible. I just want to do things my own way. Understand that what God is looking for is not simply ascent of the head. It's submission of the heart and the bending of the knee. Herod believes the word, so he inquires of it so that he can fight against it. He's still opposing God's reign. So they quote from Micah 5, but where Jesus will be born, and then in Matthew 2, verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. He's trying to discern how old Jesus actually is at this point. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child, and when you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Now understand, you're going to pick up here in the narrative a couple different um, contrasting claims to authority in this text. So Herod is just, he's just telling them what to do. Look, he summons them, he sends them, he gives them commands, go and search, and then he gives them more commands, bring me word. This is... 
This is Herod acting like Herod. Here's these foreign dignitaries. They've got wealth. They've got the entourage. They've got the wisdom. They saw the star. But Herod immediately just acts like he's king over them and starts commanding them what to do. But there's another authority at play in this text too. Looks like they're listening to the king. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them or went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother. And they fell down and they worshipped him. This is telling, right? They didn't fall down and worship Herod, not that we're told. They fall down and worship the true king. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. There's a second set of commands. And here the magi obey the commands of God. All of this text is asking the question of who is really in charge Who's the one who prophesied hundreds of years ago in Micah that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem? And who's the one who actually brought this birth to pass just like he said he would? Who's the one who caused the star to rise so that they would see it? And who's the one who caused the star seemingly to disappear so that they had to go and find Herod and ask him about the king? And who's the one who caused the star to reappear so that they saw it and they rejoiced and they followed it? And who's the one who warned them in a dream so that they obeyed? There's one who's clearly actually in charge in this text. Verse 13. Now when the Magi had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Here's some more commands. Rise. Take the child and his mother. Flee to Egypt. And remain there. Until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So what does Joseph do? He rose, took the child and his mother, see the obedience, departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This, this, is, this, is, so, this is so stunning. Here's this powerful king with all this authority and political clout and wisdom and money and, and military might and all of everything on his side. Can't command the obedience of the Magi. Can't even command the obedience of this poor Jewish family. Because they fear God. This powerful king sitting on a throne. Can't find a baby laid in a manger. Who's in charge? And and who dies? Verse 15 again, they remained there until the death of Herod. Herod. Herod wants the baby dead. He's willing to kill. But in the end, there's only one who dies. It's Herod. It gets even better. See, this is showing us, this text is showing us, God doesn't simply reign over Herod. He reigns over history This was to fulfill, Matthew said, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. This is reminding us of the history of God's people. When my son, that was was what God called 
the people, Israel, my firstborn son. And he said, let my people, let my firstborn son go. Do you remember why he had to say that? It's because God's people were opposed. They were enslaved. They were trapped by a wicked king. A power-hungry, megalomaniacal king in Egypt who would not acknowledge God or let his people go. That's a pattern, right? Pharaoh with all the power. Pharaoh refusing to bend the knee to God. Pharaoh who kept hardening his heart to God and establishing himself as king instead. Pharaoh who only when he was at the bottom of the Red Sea would understand that he was on the wrong side of history. This is a pattern. It's it's the pattern of Micah 5 as well. If we had time, we could go back and look in Micah 5, the verse that's quoted here to say where the Messiah is going to be born. In the context, it's all about the opposition of the foreign nations who are oppressing God's people and they're taking them captive into Assyria, into a foreign land. But what's going to happen? God's going to cause a Messiah, a Christ to be born to deliver his people despite all the opposition of the nations. That's what this Christ is born to do. I, uh, I trust that you're not uh, a gambler, and, that, uh, and I hope especially you don't b- bet on boxing, because boxing gro- is gross. But if you, uh, if you were going to bet on a boxing match, uh, and you, you showed up halfway through, and for some reason you were still allowed to place bets, and you looked, and one person, one of the boxers was like, he's got all the energy, and he's, he's, he's dancing around, he's got the fast feet and the fast hands, and the other guy's like bloodied, and he's, and he's weak, and he's broken, he's, he's clearly losing. I think I know who you would probably, if you're wise, probably lay your money on, unless you've seen the Rocky movies. <laughs> And by, you know, by like Rocky 16 or 17, you know the plot, right? He's got to get beat up for a while before, before he can win. See, Sylvester Stallone was on to something. You can repeat plot lines. That's okay. He's taking a page out of God's book. This is the pattern. There's all kinds of opposition. The world does its worst with all its might, with all its strength, with all its power. But we should know by now how the story ends. My friend, listen. Herod loses. And you're not stronger than Herod. You're not greater than Pharaoh. And and here's the thing. Herod and Pharaoh are not even the greatest enemies that Jesus is going to face. It's not the worst opposition that's going to come against him. In just 30 years' time, the the Jewish leaders together with the leaders of the nations, the Romans, will conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed. And they will put him to death. And the last enemy, the greatest enemy, death itself, with all of its power, with all of its might, will come against him. And he will suffer and die. But the last enemy, the greatest enemy, will fall when Jesus rises again on the third day. Because his kingdom is coming to earth no matter what. Despite all opposition, he reigns. The one you are resisting is the one who has already written history. Do not resist him. You know how the story ends. His kingdom is 
coming. If he can't be stopped by Herod or by death, he will not. He will not vacate his throne for you. His kingdom is coming despite all opposition. Matthew, Matthew doesn't want to stop there because, because you could acknowledge again with mental assent, okay, what you're saying sounds like it could be true. I could conceive of that theoretically, but I just don't see it. It's not what appears to be true in the world around me. And that's, that's why Matthew says this. Secondly, the reign of heaven comes to earth despite all appearances. It's, it's, very, it's a very similar thought, but there's an important shift. What does it look like is happening around you? Does it really look like the kingdom of heaven is coming? Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. So when it looks like the good guys might be winning, he becomes furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. What does it look like is happening here? This supposed king, the one who's been born miraculously, he's on the run with his family. They're running for their lives. And there's one who actually has great power, it seems, who is slaughtering children at will. In the town of Bethlehem, it's, it's estimated that there were, at this point in history, somewhere between 300 and 1,000 people. It's a really small town. Um, so with a number um, in that range, it's estimated that there's roughly between 10 to 30 boys in Bethlehem, who would have been two years old and, and under. So that's, that's helpful for me, because sometimes as a child, when I picture the Christmas narrative and, and Herod wiping out the children, I'm picturing like thousands of, of babies being wiped out. That's not the picture. It's somewhere between 10 to 30 boys in Bethlehem who are being put to death. But what does that do to you if you're a town, if, if you're a town of 300 to 1,000 people, and then 10 to 30 of your infants and toddlers are killed, like everyone knows someone. It's, it's not like this is a suffering that's off in the distance, remote, removed somewhere. You, you all know if it wasn't your family, it was your neighbor's family. Everyone lost a son. Everybody remembers the day that the soldiers came to town and tragedy struck and bloodshed, unimaginable bloodshed came to your peaceful village. It looks like the wrong side is winning. It does not look like Jesus' side the right, is the right side of history. It doesn't look like the kingdom of heaven is coming. Verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. There's an irony there, right? They who wanted to kill the child, they themselves now are dead. Verse 21, he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, one of the sons of Herod, was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So you see God reigning over history here too. Archelaus is vicious, He's, he's nasty as well, 
But he's not as smart or as capable as his father. So the kingdom has been divided between a few of Herod's sons. And this all works out according to God's plan for the fulfillment of prophecy. Because now Galilee is no longer under Archelaus' rule. And so they're allowed, they're able to go to Galilee. Why that matters is this. He went and lived, verse 23, in a city called Nazareth that was spoken by the prophet, might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. So it still seems like the bad guys are, are winning. They're still ruling. There's still evil people and, and vicious people and cruel dictators and all these things. Tyrants ruling. And it seems in some sense like it goes from, from bad to worse um, for Jesus and, and for his family here. They, uh, they go to live in Galilee, which was a region that people didn't, didn't think much of. And in particular, Nazareth, which is like... I mean, people felt about Nazareth like, uh, like back back then, like Mark and people feel about Toronto now. Like it's like what, like nothing good. Like, it's why is it even there? Like that's where the that's I don't know the, the filthy, the unclean lived or something. Like, uh, so so in in the Gospels, you pick this up in the Gospels in John chapter one. When, when Nathaniel hears that the Messiah, that, hey, we think we found the Messiah, and they, they tell him, come, come, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel said to them, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like, the old, I don't know much, but I'm, I'm no theologian, but the Messiah can't come from Nazareth. Like, that's too filthy. That's, that's wrong. In, in John chapter 7, when there's controversy over whether Jesus may be the Christ or not, someone said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Really? And then some do believe, and so the religious rulers oppose them, and the question that the religious rulers reply, they say, are you from Galilee too? Like, the only reason why you could think anything good could come from Galilee is if you're also from Galilee, because everyone else knows nothing good comes from Galilee. And Jesus comes not just from Galilee, but from the worst region, from the worst town, from, from Nazareth. Now... It's possible here, when, uh, when it says the, this happened to fulfill what the prophet said, he should be called a Nazarene. There's a couple different ways you could possibly interpret this. The Hebrew letters that make up this word could be uh, referring to a couple different words with Old Testament traditions. Isaiah 11, one shall come, a shoot from the root of Jesse. It's, it's that root word, or that same root word. Um, that, so it could be a play on that. It, it could also be from Genesis 49, when Jacob is blessing his children. It says a prince will come from Judah. The word from prince has the same letter. So it could just be a pun that, that Matthew's picking up on. But, but I think rather what's happening is this. Because he says this happened to fulfill the prophets, and it's plural, I think he's picking up on a tradition that's present in many of the prophets, and it's specifically this, that you'll think of him like you think of a Nazarene, which is not much. He's going to look very unimpressive to the human eye when he appears. Isaiah 53 teases this out in length. This is one example of a tradition in the prophets. Isaiah 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
The point is this, when you look at him, really from Galilee, from Nazareth, and then throughout his life, a man of sorrows until the day he hangs on the cross, everything about him, when you look at him, is unimpressive. You would sooner think, here's a guy cursed by God, than here's the guy who's the king of, of God's kingdom. But what does God do? Isaiah 53 and verse 11, what does God do with the unimpressive one, the one we think is cursed, verse 11 of Isaiah 53. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He will divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Do you get the pattern? It looks like the wrong side is winning. It looks like the Messiah. It looks like the king is being disregarded. It looks like he is nothing. He's despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, a Nazarene from Galilee, He's scorned, despised, mocked. And people in time will come to use his name as a curse word. But a day is coming when at that name every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord on the right side of history. Despite the fact that he appears to be nothing, a baby in a manger, a child from Nazareth, the son of a carpenter, a traveling rabbi, a passing fad, an executed blaspheming preacher. This nobody will rise from the dead and rule over all creation. You know why this is important for us to get our heads around? Because this text tells us the experience, the actual experience of God's people will be one of weeping, of sorrow, and of suffering. And on the surface of it, it looks like Jeremiah, the quote from Jeremiah 31 here, about Rachel and her children, she's weeping, she can't be comforted. It, it, it might be possible to read that like, you know what, we're just going to cry. You've got to get over it. You've got to get used to it. But I think it's really important that we understand that passage in context because it carries great power. So I want to read to you from Jeremiah 31 the verses that lead up to this passage that Matthew's quoting because it, it sets the table well for us. Jeremiah 31 and verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. See, this is a passage of hope. He's, he's gathering, he's giving hope to his people. For, verse 11, for the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, all these covenantal blessings. God is going to pour them out on his people. Over the young of the flock and of the herd, their life shall be like a watered garden. They shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old shall be married. Merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them 
and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. This passage is a passage of hope. It's a passage of life. It's a passage of blessing and joy and salvation. But then look in verse 15. This is our verse. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they're no more. What Jeremiah is doing is he's saying, look, your current reality is one where there are tears. It looks bad. But this isn't the end. Look what he says in verse 16. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping. Don't weep like this is the end of the story because this is not the end of the story. Keep your voice from weeping, your eyes from tears. There is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There's hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children shall come back to their own country. The people of God have great promises, a hope and a future, the blessing and life and resurrection and eternity with Him in His presence where there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore at his right hand that is our future our tears are temporary God says lift up your eyes there's hope for your future there's joy and singing and dancing and healing there's satisfaction awaiting you despite all appearances The reign of heaven is coming to earth. Do you believe that? Like actually? Because it's been a hard couple of years, right? I've had some tears. Feels like um, society just feels like it's falling apart. There's, uh, there's just divisions all over the place. Feels like all kinds of weird things are happening politically. There's a disease that's been ravaging the world and putting us in, in fear. Some of us have known division in our own families over the past couple of years that we've never known before. We've suffered through terrible things. We've had loved ones die without even being able to say goodbye to them. We've had revealed all kinds of problems, injustices, socially, broadly in our culture that we're like, we don't even know what to do with or how to process. And then just in the isolation, isolation like we've never known before, all the internal mental health issues, suicide is on the rise. Our churches, our churches, I mean, I'm not just saying this about you guys, I'm saying this about us and all the churches I know, there's just, there's just turmoil, there's, there's unrest. There have been battle lines drawn up in weird places that we couldn't have anticipated. There have been people who've left that we loved and we didn't want them to leave. That's, that's all kind of going on and at the same time, you read the news globally 
You look at what's happening politically in Canada, it seems like opposition is mounting once again against the church, against the kingdom. This Christmas, do you actually believe in the midst of all of that, that despite all appearances, the kingdom of heaven is coming to earth? Whether you believe that comes back to how you answer this question. Do you believe that this baby, born in a manger, chased from one country to another, will one day rule the globe? Do you believe that the Nazarene will be honored and glorified? That the one who is crucified will come again as king? To swear allegiance to this king, despite all appearances and opposition, no matter what forces amount against you, is to put yourself on the right side of history. Does that give you hope this Christmas? Not just in your happiness, but in the midst of your heartbreak. Do you believe it sufficiently that this is objectively true, that the kingdom is coming, do you believe it sufficiently to have joy this Christmas despite the sorrow in your life and in the world around you? If you are not sure where you stand with this king, can I admonish you? Get right with him and you will find yourself on the right side of history. If he is your king, if he is your savior, if you've put your trust in him, my friends, despite all opposition, despite all appearances, you have cause to rejoice. Because the one who suffered for us and suffered for our sins is coming again. And he will reign on the right side of history forever and ever. Let's pray. Father God, our heart's desire is that we would see Jesus rightly. That we would worship him truly. That you, our triune God, would receive all honor and all glory and all praise. We believe that your reign is coming. It's here. One day it will come fully. We look forward to that day. We pray, Father, that you in your mercy, in your mercy, would help our unbelief this Christmas. Help us now, right now, to proclaim the reign of the one who is coming. We pray in Jesus' name.